this morning. Uh, this winter and this spring, we are in a sermon series that is looking at how we engage with the people around us and the culture around us for the sake of the gospel. Now, to do just a real quick review before we jump into Acts chapter 8 this morning, um, going back uh, about three weeks, uh, just a, again, quick reminder, we looked at the call of, of Jesus on his disciples to be his witnesses, and it was pretty simple and straightforward. In chapter 1, Jesus says, I'm going to empower you with the Holy Spirit for the purpose of you being my witnesses all over the world. It starts in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. And so a few weeks ago, we just kind of looked at that's God's call on our lives. If we claim to follow Christ, if we claim to be one of his disciples, then that's part of our calling. It's not just to be saved, but also to be witnesses for Christ. Uh, week before last, we looked at community life, and we invited folks that maybe uh, were not convinced that Christianity was true or not quite sure about Jesus Come and take a look at our fellowship, and what should you see? And we looked at, at the end of Acts chapter 2, and some of the things that uh, were kind of earmarks of the early church. We said, uh, while we're not called to do exactly the same thing, this is a descriptive passage, not prescriptive. It's not saying that we have to go worship at a temple somewhere. But the spirit within that fellowship is, is what folks should see. Last Sunday, uh, with uh, Nathan's, uh, uh, Nathan Mosier's ordination, Bill Vogler was in town preaching, and he talked about the servant attitude of Christ and how that should be our attitude. So this morning, uh, we're going to look at Acts chapter 8, so you can turn in your Bibles or your touchpads or your phones or all the different things that you have a Monday morning guy's Bible study, and I say, open your Bible, and I'm the only guy with a Bible. Everybody else is, is, is doing this. I'm, I'm old school, I guess, but uh, it'll be on the screen also. Uh, we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 8 and how uh, we engage with someone who's inquisitive about the Christian faith. Uh, typically on late Monday afternoons, the last Monday afternoon was no exception, I was over at Top Hat, uh, which is a little shop right next to Mike Duffy's, and I was having my Monday afternoon cigar like Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher of the last century or two centuries ago. Um, he's one of my heroes. But uh, I typically go late Monday afternoons and I work on my logic, my devotional that I, that I write each week try to get that done on Monday afternoon. So I kind of go over in the corner, and there's a big easy chair, and I sit there. Uh, and, and this is the kind of place where there's several easy chairs and a big couch, and you kind of can have your own space. And so I'm busy, right, and I've been there about half an hour, and this guy comes, and he sits down. My, my chair is sitting here, and the end of the couch is right here, and he comes and sits down right next to me. Now, I know women, you're kind of comfortable with each other, kind of talking real close. That's, that guys can't deal with that. It's like, if you're within five feet of me, you're within my space, okay? So... I kind of look up and smile and kind of go back about my work. And this is a guy that I, I knew his first name. We weren't strangers, but I wouldn't even necessarily say we're acquaintances. We're kind of somewhere in between. So it's like we're really good buddies. And I'm typing away, and I'm not really making any eye contact. And, and he just says to no one in particular, although it's one of the two of us sitting there, don't you think that when God gave us free will, he really made a mistake? <laughs> and yeah, oh, boy. That's <laughs> I'm like... I'm minding my own business, I'm not, you know, and uh, for whatever reason, I felt compelled to say, you know, actually, the Bible doesn't teach that God's given any of us a free will past Adam and Eve. It teaches that our will's actually broken by our own sinfulness, and he said, well, I can, I can sure attest to that, and uh, that was uh, most of the conversation. We went on to talk about a couple of different things, uh, and I'm sure I'll see him again, but it reminded me that God is always working in people's minds and hearts. God is, is always at work building his kingdom. God is always posting or, or, or putting questions like that 
into people's minds. Scripture is very clear about the fact that we can know God even from a distance. We're kind of we're, we're definitely built to be in a relationship with Him. Now we've messed that up and we've broken it, but the residue of that is still in our lives. And God is actively working in people's hearts. He's growing His His kingdom and He's bringing inquisitive people across our paths. Sometimes on a daily basis, sometimes maybe once every other month. But there are people that cross your path and my path that have questions about what it means to be in a relationship with God through Christ. Am I ready to share? <laughs> Does my body language show that I'm, that I'm interested in a conversation? Am I looking for opportunities? Or am I hoping secretly that nobody really asks? Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 26, reading through the end of the chapter. Hear the word of God. Now, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Philip was a disciple of Jesus's, by the way. He's one of the, one of the early converts, the first generation of Christians. So the, uh, the angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go towards the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. So at the time he was in Jerusalem, he rose and he went. And there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading from Isaiah, the prophet, and he asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I understand unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and to sit with him. Now, the passage of Scripture where he was reading was this, and now he quotes out of what we would call today Isaiah chapter 53. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shears is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation, or who can describe his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does this prophet say this? About himself? Or about someone else. Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, this Isaiah scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, and Philip and the eunuch, and he was and Philip baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself in Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word. To him alone be glory. Let's pray. Father, I would ask this morning uh, that your spirit and your word would speak to every person in this room. Father, we are, uh, we are about supernatural things here, not because we're good people and not because we have it all figured out, but because you are at work. You are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Uh, your word is eternal truth. It does not change with public opinion. It does not ebb and flow based on our reaction. You love us enough to stay consistent in your message of grace and of mercy and of truth. So, Father, we need your word this morning, not mine, not man's words. We hear those all the time. One opinion is not any more important than another. But, Lord, your words of life are the only thing that can nourish our souls for all of eternity. And so we pray that you would, uh, you would speak this morning, that you would uh, present your truth to us. Father, we pray that you give us ears to hear, 
hearts to receive your message in spite of how it may or may not be delivered. Father, we pray that whether we have known you a long time or whether we're even wondering whether or not you exist, that you would penetrate our hearts and our minds with your love, your grace, with your powerful word. We pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. I want to give you four observations out of this text this morning that I believe point directly to the fact that God is moving in people's hearts, that God makes people inquisitive. God makes people scratch their heads and wonder about faith. The question isn't whether or not God does that. God does that. The question is whether or not you and I, if we are disciples of Jesus this morning, whether or not we are alert to that and paying attention and seeing our role in that process. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not a disciple of Jesus, we're glad you're here. We're thrilled you're here. We hope you come back all the time. There's no, like, secret handshake we're going to teach you before, you know, you can, you can be welcomed here at Green Tree. And I want to remind the Green Tree family, look around you. You see folks you don't know, make sure they feel welcome. But as you are considering the claims of Christ, understand that God works through people. That God shares his message, not just out of the blue, miraculously, kind of, you know, in, the, in a mysterious way. But more often than not, it's in a very common practical, down-to-earth conversation between two people. Whether you're sitting in church hearing a sermon, you're having a cup of coffee with a friend, you turn on your radio and you happen to hear you know, a preacher preaching the gospel, God is giving you some inquiring thoughts. God wants you to consider the truth of his word. So this morning as we look at this passage, we see that God is very active and we see a guy who, who kind of gets it uh, for the most part, and responds and what comes out of that. So I want to give you four observations about how God is working in people's hearts. He's bringing inquisitive folks across our paths and how he calls us to be ready to share. The first is that there is a prearranged rendezvous that is, that is very clearly laid out in this text. So if you look at verse 26 and then skip down to verse 29, you see this clearly. 26 says, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go towards the south, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza, this is, and then the descriptive term that Luke gives, this is a desert place. Now, we know the scripture says that God brings salvation through Christ Jesus. That that is the one means, there aren't 30 or 40 or 50, 60 different options, there's one way to salvation. God's not being exclusive, he is being thorough. You say, well, that's narrow-minded of God to only point to one way. Well, if there's only way out, one way out, don't you want to know it? And so it's clear that Scripture says, Jesus says, I'm the Savior. I'm the one who's coming to bring you mercy and grace. But as I said a moment ago, this message most often is transcribed through interaction with Jesus' disciples. Philip being at the right place at the right time is no coincidence. When the text begins, Philip is in Jerusalem. Philip is in the center of the Christian community. There are only a few hundred Christians so far. Philip's one of those early converts, but everybody that's coming to Christ so far, all the, all the kind of the, the town talk about it, all the, all the energy, all the inertia that's going in the church is all ha- had, uh, taking place surrounding this little group in Jerusalem. And Philip's right smack dab in the middle of it, and then an angel of the Lord appears and says, I want you to leave town and I want you to go to the road down to Gaza. And by the way, Luke says it's in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> and if you're Philip, you're like, why are you taking me away from the action? Why, why are you taking me away from where I, I can really do something that will benefit the kingdom of God? Why are you taking me and putting me out in the middle of nowhere? But Philip, Philip goes. And it's no coincidence that he's at the right place at the right time to meet a man who's trying to sort out questions of faith. You see, God has an appointment that he wants Philip 
to keep your interactions and my interactions with people is not happenstance. It's not coincidence. It's not by a quirk of fate. God has designed folks to come across your pathway and my pathway as disciples of Jesus so the conversations can take place. There are no chance encounters. There are opportunities. The question is whether we will seize them or whether we will miss them. And notice here that we, we, we don't want to, we want to paint people in Scripture for who they really are, folks just like you and me. Philip's not the hero of this story because Philip gets out here in the middle of nowhere and he clearly sees the chariot. So here's Philip and here's one guy and Philip's going, what am I supposed to do? <laughs> Duh, there's one guy. So the spirit has to say to Philip, Philip, go over and join the chariot. <laughs> you know, I'm a little slow like that sometimes. You know, Philip's probably kicking the dirt and going, you know, if I was back in Jerusalem, I could be preaching right now. I could be leading a Bible study. I don't know who that guy is, but I can't believe I'm out here in the middle of nowhere. And there's nobody around to talk to, you know, and finally Spirit says, excuse me, he's right there. Would you just go talk to him? You see what this passage tells us Philip needed and what you and I need is to have our thinking reoriented. We need to understand that God is in the business of prearranged rendezvous. And it's not like we're going to, you know, just all, all of a sudden, every moment of every day, you know, walk up to a total stranger and say, now, you know, I think there's a reason why, you know, you and I have crossed paths. I'm not talking about making us, you know, hyper obnoxious with this, but rather that there's a sensitivity it's in our lives that, that we, we look at our jobs, we look at uh, the, the school we go to, the classes we're in, we look at the, the, the families in which we live, the, the street, uh, our neighbors to the right or the left, and we begin to say, God, uh, who and when? And where? You just make me sensitive to your leading. I want to be uh, ready to be, be understanding and looking for those opportunities that you might bring my way. Might not be one this week. There might not be one for six months. Lord, that's up to you. But help me understand that you're the one that arranges these things, and I need to be sensitive to it. Tony Compolo, who's a sociologist and a, and a Christian, told a story years ago about getting on a plane after he'd been speaking all week at a conference to a couple thousand people, and he was just exhausted. And he just, you know, he'd been doing all this great work, and he'd been, you know, sharing the gospel, and, and he gets on the plane, and he says, Lord, I, you know, I, I can hardly put one foot in front of another. Just, I would just love to sleep on this flight. You know, please just let me have some peace and quiet. And, I'm, and he said, and I just, I, I kind of got out of a book, and I did this, and I, you know, I didn't look at anybody else. I, you know, person came and sat down next to me. I totally ignored him. And uh, after about a minute, I kind of saw the corner of my eyes that there was a woman sitting next to me, and her shoulders were shaking. And her head was kind of bobbing a little bit. And, and, and tears were beginning to flow. And I'd never seen this woman in, her, in, her, in my life. And she looked, turned her head sideways, looked straight at me and said, do you know anything about God? <laughs> Sometimes it has to be that obvious, <laughs> you know. And Campolo went on to say, how, you know, how ashamed he felt that he was, you know, so consumed with himself. But, but point being, our first observation, God has these prearranged rendezvous. Are we looking for them? Are, are we open to them? Are we aware that they may happen? The second thing I think this text shows us is that the call on the disciples' life is to help create a pathway into the conversation. Look at verse 30 with me for just a moment, and then we'll get to the other verses in just a second. It says, so Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? Now, what I want you to see here, I think, is, is, is fundamentally crucial. It's a friendly question. It's not a startling pronouncement. Philip runs up, he listens for a second, and he says, how can I 
help you. Philip knew the prophet Isaiah. Philip was, was a Jew by natural descent. He knew the, the words backwards and forwards. He knew exactly what Isaiah wanted. And when he ran up to the, to the chariot and he heard this reading, he didn't jump in and say, are you lucky I'm here? <laughs> God sent me to you. Let me tell you what you need to know, right? I was getting nervous when people say, God told me to tell you. I just think kind of freaks me out just a little bit. And I'm a pastor but, um, and, and, and believe very much in God. But here's Philip just kind of creating a pathway to the conversation. Hey, do you understand what you're reading? Do you kind of get it? I think for us it's important that we learn this gentleness. We learn to ask questions. We learn to listen to what someone else replies. And, and now look at, at the response that comes uh, through these verses. Uh, and I've kind of uh, sandwiched them a little bit. I'm not giving you all. But in 31 he says, how can I? How can I understand unless someone guides me? And then what does he do? He feels safe around Philip, right? Philip, why don't you come on up and sit down? It sounds like maybe you know something about this. So Philip is creating a sense of ease. And then uh, verses 32 and 33, we hear the, the words out of the prophet Isaiah, which I'm not going to repeat right now. And then the eunuch says to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? So when the prophet is talking about the lamb that's led to the slaughter and that he has no descendants, who, is he speaking about himself or someone else? So he's inquiring about the gospel, but part of the reason he feels okay to inquire was that Philip didn't you know, kind of jump up in the chariot and beat him over the head with his Bible. He said, hey, you having trouble figuring that out? Not only do we need to understand that God is creating opportunities, these rendezvous, but we need to understand that the way in which we approach them is absolutely crucial. Do we understand that our responsibility as a disciple of Jesus is to help someone feel safe enough to share the deepest questions of their hearts? I'll read you a little bit about a, a story of a woman named Rosaria, and I've mentioned this to a lot of people. Uh, and this article, is actually, I'm just going to give you a couple paragraphs of it. It's actually in last month's uh, January, February issue of Christianity Today, if you want to follow up on it. But this woman named Rosaria was, uh, here's how she uh, describes herself a little bit. She says, the word Jesus stuck in my throat like an elephant tusk. No matter how hard I choked, I couldn't hack it out. Those who professed the name commanded my pity and my wrath. As a university professor, I was tired of students who seemed to believe that knowing Jesus meant knowing little else. She goes on to just talk about how much she absolutely despised Christianity. And as a, as a uh, university professor, she wrote her first article in 1997 was an attack against a Christian group called Promise Keepers. And that's where I want to pick up a little bit of what this article says. It says, this article that she wrote, this attack on Promise Keepers, generated many rejoinders, so many that I kept the Xerox box on each side of my desk, one for the hate mail and one for the fan mail. One later I received, defied my filing system. It's from a pastor of Syracuse Reform Presbyterian Church. It's kind of an inquiring letter. Ken Smith encouraged me to explore the kind of questions I admire. How did you arrive at your interpretations? How, did my art, um, how do you know you're right? Do you believe in God? Ken didn't argue with my article. Rather, he asked me to defend the presuppositions that undergirded it. I didn't know how to respond, so I threw it away. Later that night, I finished, fished it out of the recycling bin and put it back on my desk where it stared at me for a week, confronting me with a worldview divide that demanded a response. As postmodern intellectual, I operated from a historical materialistic worldview, but Christianity was a supernatural worldview. Ken's letter punctured the integrity of my research project without him knowing it. With the letter, Ken initiated two years of bringing the church to me, a heathen. He did not mock. He engaged. So when his letter invited me to get together for dinner, I accepted. My motives at the time were straightforward. Surely this would be good for my research. Something else happened. 
Ken and his wife Flo and I became friends. They entered my world. They met my friends. We did book exchanges. We talked openly about sexuality and politics. They did not act as if such conversations were polluting them. They did not treat me like a blank slate. When we ate together, Ken prayed in a way that I had never heard before. His prayers were intimate, vulnerable. He repented of his sin in front of me. Thank God for all things. Ken's God was holy and firm, yet full of mercy. And because Ken and Floyd did not invite me to their church, I knew it was safe to be friends. I started reading the Bible. And then she goes on to talk about how she came to Christ. Creating a pathway. Do we understand that Christ is leading us not to judge other people, not to critique their lifestyles, not to tell them where they're right and to tell them where they're wrong, but to bring them to Jesus? Are we intent on creating pathways that would allow those kinds of opportunities? God is prearranging these rendezvous. He calls us to create a pathway. The next question is, are we prepared to respond to the question? In, uh, in verse 35, um, it says that Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. So the question is, who's the guy talking about in Isaiah? And so what Philip does, he says, well, let's start there. Let's start with Isaiah, and it wasn't called Isaiah 53 like it is in our Bible today. So but let's start with Isaiah the prophet. Let me tell you about Isaiah the prophet. Let me tell you who he was and what he did. And they talk, and I don't know how long they talk. Maybe they talk for 45 minutes. Maybe they talk for three hours. The scriptures don't say. But starting with the point in Isaiah, he lays out the truth that Jesus is the Messiah. You see, Philip was ready with a sound answer that was based on scripture. God used that combination. He used Philip. His mind, his intellect, his understanding, coupled with Scripture and the power of the Holy Spirit to redeem this man, to bring him to faith in Christ. And we know that happened because in 36, they're going along the road. They came to some water, and again, I don't know how long it was, but they've clearly already covered the topic of baptism. <laughs> Philip's already said to him, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and if you believe in him, you should be baptized, right? And, and that's, that's right along with Scripture, right? If this, this guy wasn't baptized as an infant, there were no infant baptisms. This is the first generation of Christians. And so put your faith in Christ, be baptized. So they had already covered that much material to the point where the guy says, well, why can't, what prevents me from being baptized? Look, there's some water, right? Philip says nothing. They stopped the chariot. They both went down the water, Philip and the eunuch, and Philip baptizes him. God used Philip in those few short minutes or a couple hours, however long that engagement was, to bring this man to Christ. Are you and I ready? Not only are you and I ready, but are we looking for this conversation, this opportunity? And if so, if you're saying, you know, Tom, as I, as I see this passage, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm seeing maybe for the first time or being reminded that, that God's got some of these prearranged rendezvous. And, and that, that's appealing to me. And the idea of, of just trying to be winsome and kind and, and look for the opportunities and not, you know, beat people up with it, but share graciously the gospel, that sounds great. But if your next phrase out of your mouth is, but I wouldn't know where to start, <laughs> join a lot of the rest of us. And as disciples of Jesus, if we get the first two and miss the third and we don't have anything to say, what's the point? Friendliness is a very good thing, but it only goes so far. you got to have the truth. 
And every one of us as disciples of Jesus need to be ready at a moment's notice. If you're going to pray, God, let me see the rendezvous moments. Let me, let me be ready. Let me have the right heart. Let me have the kindness and, and the gentleness and the humility to share in, a, in, a, in an appropriate way then we need to get our noses in the word and make sure we understand the truth of God. And I'm not saying from cover to cover you have to understand all of it. But could you lead someone to Christ right now? Could you pull out your touchpad Bible could you, or, or, or a real-life Bible if you still had one and say, let me, let me share a few verses with you about what it means to have faith in Christ. We need to be able to fill in the blanks. We need to be prepared to respond. And my fourth observation this morning before we come to the Lord's table is simply this, that 1 plus 1 equals 39,168. Now, for those of you that have been dozing off, I got your attention back because now we're, you know, that math doesn't work out, right? Okay. In verse 39, it says, And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And the eunuch saw him no more, but the eunuch went on his way, going back home to Ethiopia, to his job, to, to his family, went on his way rejoicing. He was a new man. He was now verbalizing his faith. Rejoicing is not sitting there thinking about it. Rejoicing is praising God. So now we have a new disciple of Jesus. The, the, the work that God intended to do has been done. But Philip does what? He finds himself at Azotus, which is another region. And what does he do? He passes through and he preaches the gospel in all these towns until he comes to Caesarea. Engaging the, inquis the inquisitive results in expanding the community of disciples. Philip and the Ethiopian go their separate ways, right? They're not going to the same town. They're not, they're, they're not joined at the hip now. But both go rejoicing in the gospel, and both go ready to tell others. It's the idea of multiplication. So how does 1 plus 1 equals 39,168? I'm glad you asked. Green Tree Community Church is 15 years old. If Philip and the Ethiopian started from that point forward, so now one plus, now we got two, right? If in the next year, each of those two just led one person to Christ, okay? Now we have two plus two equals four, right? And now if a whole other year goes by, and in the third year, those four people go talk to four other people, now after three years, we have eight. You do the math for 15 years, eight people share with eight goes to 16. 16 shared to 16 goes to 32. 32 to 32 goes to 64. 64 to 64 goes to 128. 128 to 128 goes to 256. 256 to 256 go to 612, and then the numbers get real big, and you're only in year seven. So in 15 years, if one person just leads one person to Christ each year, and that person just does the same for 15 years, 39,168 people will come to Christ. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? Just talking to one person a year. I purposely set the bar low. Because a buddy of mine says, if you set the bar low, you'll never be disappointed. So if I said to you now, before this time next year, we need to all go out and make sure we lead 25 people to Christ, you're not going to ever talk to one person. I get that, because I wouldn't either. But we said, could it be that perhaps God might bring one person across my path in the next 12 months that he wants to talk to, wants me to talk to about Christ? Green Tree has been around for 15 years. I, I started doing the math Green Tree here in Kirkwood, directly or indirectly through the churches that we've planted. And I think it would be safe to say that over those 15 years, there are probably at least 2,000 people that have come to Christ through the ministries of Green Tree, through our planting church in Columbia, through the work we've done here in our community, Webster, now City Church now. I think in 15 years, there's probably 2,000 people that have, that have come to Christ. It's not quite 39,168. <laughs> we need a little more than 3.7 acres in downtown Kirkwood if that were the case. And I'm not saying it because I want to grow the church for the sake of growing the church. That's not the point. The 
The point is that in God's sovereign plan, he calls you and me to this one-on-one relationship with other folks simply to point them to be Christ, but to Christ. But the truth of the matter is, friends, from a human perspective, this is very, very difficult. This is very hard. You have a reputation. I have a reputation we might be worried about. What will people think if I share the gospel with others? What, what would people think if we're at a cocktail party and somebody says, I just don't know what to do with my life, and I say to them, you know, it's odd you say that in front of me because maybe we were supposed to talk. <laughs> people go, this guy or gal is a little weird. Are you willing to risk your reputation for someone else's soul? That's, that's tough. Your schedule, you're busy, I'm busy. Maybe you're sitting there going this morning, yeah, I'm, I'm still back on number three. I think of everything I've got to learn, it almost kind of stops me dead in my tracks. For, for a lot of us, it's just easier to be judgmental. Well, those people don't think the way we think. I don't want to talk to those people. They're kind of my enemies, not my friends. There's lots of obstacles to the greatness of sharing the gospel with one person. So what do you do when you're stuck? I don't know what you do, but I go to hockey. And I was reading an article this week, and Ken Hitchcock was talking about the gospel of hockey. Ken Hitchcock is the coach of the St. Louis Blues. Frank, in case you didn't know that, Frank's in my Bible study. He doesn't like hockey. Um, Hitchcock's talking about the slump they're in. And here's what he says. This is an unbelievable opportunity. Hitchcock said of his team slump, you just can't pass it up. If you pass it up, maybe it never comes back to you. This is the time that hockey clubs are built. You have no choice. You either come together or you go the other way. I'm not near as bad as you, uh, excuse me, it's not near as bad as you think it is, Hitchcock said of the slump. But if you're talking about the spirit of a hockey club and the spirit of being a team, it's the time that you can really grow it. I just don't want to see our players pass this up, pass up this opportunity, because this is long-lasting. This is the stuff that stays with you forever, for years, and you can't afford to pass this time up. It's like, yeah, it's, it's going to be a lot of rough water, yet, but what an opportunity to grow this team right now. Now, that's hockey, and trust me, hockey's important to me. <laughs> But friends, we're talking about the gospel. And it's tough to share the gospel with somebody else. I get it. I understand it. It's tough to have our minds rethink the way we approach just day in and day out life. To have our thinking retooled to say, Lord, when and where and how. I know you're going to be arranging these moments. They may, may, they may come every day and they may, may come once a year, once every five years. But I want to be ready. I want to to be the the pathway through which the gospel flows. I will commit myself to know the word of God in order that I can share. And if you're here this morning and you're wondering about Christ, you deserve that from us. That's the least you should be able to expect from people who say they believe that Jesus is Savior and Lord. There are a lot of obstacles to it. There are a lot of challenges. But the flip side of that coin is there's a lot of other stories out there about Ethiopian eunuchs that need to be told. There are a lot of other stories out there about Rosarios who are living right now in in darkness and in brokenness and in hurt who need the gospel of Jesus Christ. When the inquisitive come our way, what will we do? Will you pray with me? Father, we praise you for your word this morning. Lord, I thank you that uh, when you call us to follow you. You called Philip to to go to that road. You knew what was going to happen. You had prepared Philip for that moment. 
You had sent your spirit. You had given them your word. You took them out of a, a bustling city and brought them to a place where it was real, real quiet and nobody was going to bother them for a couple of hours so that their undivided attention could be focused on the salvation that this man so desperately needed. Father, I thank you that, that yeah, Philip gets a thumbs up for being there and, and being, being ready, but Lord, you are the hero of this story. You're the one who's building your kingdom. You're the one who is changing us from the inside out. You're the one that, that's bringing inquisitive folks across our pathway. God, please, give us a sensitivity. Give us a longing and a desire to maybe be used by you, even one time a year, <laughs> to lead someone else to Jesus. Father, bring the inquisitive. Help us be alert to that that we may have the privilege of telling someone else about our Lord. And his grace and mercy, we pray in his name. Amen.